Hello and welcome to Unsupervised Thinking, a podcast on neuroscience, artificial intelligence, and science more broadly. We are a group of computational neuroscientists. I'm Grace. I'm Alex. And I'm Connor. And the topic for this episode is underdeterminacy in neural circuits. And we will get into what that means in a moment. But uh, first, uh, keen listeners may have noticed that Alex is not Josh, and Josh is not with us today. Um, so in his place, we have Alex Williams. Alex, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah. Um, yeah, so I'm Alex. I am currently a grad student at Stanford University in Surya Ganguly's lab. And uh, before coming to Stanford, uh, I actually did some work with Eve Martyr and Tim O'Leary at Brandeis, um, whose papers we'll be talking about today. Fantastic. Okay, so uh, what is underdeterminacy in neural circuits? So the idea of something being underdetermined comes from mathematics. Um, you know, it comes up in high school algebra. It's basically in that setting. It's like if you have a system of equations, if you have you know x plus y equals two and x minus y equals zero, then you have two equations and you have two unknown variables that you can solve for them. And in that case, x and y would both equal one. Um, but if you had x plus y equals two and that was the only equation you'd have, then you have more variables than you have equations. And that would be an underdetermined system because there are many different values of, of x and y that uh, can fit that single equation. And so that's kind of where the general idea comes from, this term, this idea that um, you have more unknowns than you kind of have the data to fit them. And that comes up in neuroscience in actually two different ways. So one is kind of the straightforward way where we actually don't have a lot of data. So you can imagine if you're recording from neural circuits, um, you might record from a handful of cells in a population that has perhaps thousands of cells. And so if you want to understand how does the activity of this cell arise, and you know that it's a function of the other cells in the circuit, but you don't have the activity of the other cells in the circuit, then you have an underdetermined situation there. Um, and so it comes up for people trying to build models of neural circuits and kind of use data to, to fit models. Those models are underdetermined. The second version of this is kind of a little bit more fundamental. It's kind of the idea that biology or evolution has admitted that a problem is underdetermined and so it solves it many different ways. So an example is that if you need to produce oscillations for some reason, you want a neuron to be oscillating, you can think of things like um, a heartbeat or something like that. There are a lot of different ways to get neurons to oscillate or get systems of neurons to oscillate and it could be the case that just individuals within a species, just different organisms, different individual organisms, have come to solve that problem in different ways. And so it's not the case that we just don't have the data, it's that each individual of, of a species is actually doing it slightly differently. So we're going to talk about both of those kinds today. Yeah, maybe I can just like expand a little bit more on this notion of underdeterminacy because it's so central. Um, so in the example that you gave, Grace, from like high school algebra, right, it's like you have you know, two variables that you don't know, X and Y, and you have some pieces of information that tell you something about the values of X and Y. So you could like have something like, yeah, X plus Y equals two. So that gives you something, you know, you know something about the way they relate to each other. They have to sum up to be two. Um, but there are an infinite number of integers that sum up to be two. So there's infinitely many pairs of X and Y um, that that can, can, um, can give you that can kind of fit the equation. Um, and so I think this general theme of kind of 
how much information or constraint you have versus how many things you're trying to kind of know or um, how many in, in neural circuits, like what is the kind of some approximate notion of the dimensionality of the kinds of behaviors you might want to see or something. You could even think of that in terms of animals, like how complex are animals versus like how, what is the kind of um, like the dimensionality of the space of behaviors they want to be kind of engaging in. This kind of general relationship between the kind of number of constraints and the number of kind of building blocks or unknowns is is kind of key to the whole idea of underdeterminacy. Um, and so like in the equation example, if you just had x plus y equals 2, it's not, that the, it's not that that doesn't give you, even though you have infinitely many x, y pairs that can uh, satisfy the equation, it's not that that equation doesn't give you any constraint or any information, right? So it actually constrains you a lot. Of all the possible pairs x, y of, say, integers, the, those that fit the equation, it, that's still an infinite set, but it's a very kind of different infinite set to the set of all integers, right? All pairs of integers, you know, um, like it doesn't contain two plus one, for example, but it does contain two and zero or something. Um, and I think that kind of theme of, you know, just trade-offs between constraints and number of unknowns is like the kind of general thing that'll be in the background. Actually, uh, if, if I could jump in here and then maybe try to ground this a little bit um, in terms, I, I think the simple algebra example of x plus y equals one is actually um, really good and can serve as a jumping off point. When you think about modeling a neuron now, instead of having a simple equation like x plus y equals one, you now have a more com something more complicated, like you have two parameters, let's say the number of sodium channels in your model and the number of potassium channels. And the result is some uh, firing rate of your cell. And the basic idea is that, well, what matters for the cell is its firing rate. It doesn't actually care about the specific number of sodium channels and the specific number of potassium channels. Um, and even though, you know, as scientists, we try to break things down into, like, the most minimal reductionist parts, sometimes, yeah, you, you get into a situation where um, you can sort of reduce your model too far. And if you start thinking about neurons in terms of only counting their number of channels, you actually lose sight of the larger picture. So it turns out that um, individual cells, if they're just trying to regulate their firing rate, um, what really matters is the constraint x plus y equals 1, not the actual value of the x or the actual value of the y in any individual. Um, so that, that sort of maybe grounds it in, um, in a neuroscience example. Yep. So I think we have a good grounding in what this topic is about. Um, and so what we're going to be talking about specifically is a few different articles, many of them, as Alex said, from Eve Martyr's lab, because she kind of speaks to, to this topic in, in numerous ways. So the first one is Computational Models in the Age of Large Datasets. And this is a 2015 paper from Tim O'Leary, Alexandra Sutton, and Eve Martyr. And uh, that kind of gives an overview of a lot of the different topics kind of related to, to this idea of things being underdetermined. And then we'll get into a little bit of the details on the idea of trying to fit a model when you know that you have insufficient data to, um, 
to fit that. And the paper that we'll talk about uh, that topic with is called A Modeling Framework for Deriving Structural and Functional Architecture of a Short-Term Memory Microcircuit. Uh, the first author is Dimitri Fisher, and the last author is Mark Goldman, and that's from 2013. And this is kind of like, in my opinion, after reading it, kind of like the ideal form of what a modeling paper that is kind of aware of these problems should do. They, they uh, tackled the modeling from a lot of different angles, and I think it's a really good paper. And then the second idea of actually discovering if the, the biology itself is finding different solutions to the same problem, um, for that we read... Robust circuit rhythms in small circuits arise from variable circuit components and mechanisms, and that's um, the first author is Eve Martyr for that one. Okay, so in the, the first one, the kind of overview article, they talk about different levels of modeling. So there was the conceptual level, which isn't trying to fit an exact uh, data set. It's kind of just trying to understand maybe trends or possibly uh, understand things on a higher level, like how learning can occur. And so it's a little bit more vague, but can't uh, completely discard actual data. And then the other level that they talk about is data-driven, where you're more focused on fitting um, specific data, but you can do that at two different levels, either like um, a more vague level or a more detailed level. So obviously, like these distinctions are not exact. I think they're in the eye of the beholder a bit, but I think maybe that's a good way to think about different problems with data fitting that can come with different styles of model. Right. I mean, I think it's important to note that, like, as with all kind of binary categories, right, this thing is, you know, it's a bit of an artificial, in my opinion, way of talking about different kinds of models. Like the reality, as, as far as I've seen in my limited scientific career, right, is that there's kind of a like you know an ongoing complex confusing interplay between these types of modeling on a day-to-day -day basis or like you know in an individual's career or in a field or between a few different people in the same area or something you know um i don't know i i just like i just say that because it's good to avoid coming down as like, oh, phenomenological models are what we need. You know, you, you get these kind of papers sometimes. It's, it's funny, it's the sociology of this is interesting to me. Like, it reminds me of that, uh, that paper from Krakauer that we read about we need more behavior, you know, these kind of interventions into, you know, into fields like we have to do this or we have to do that. And, you know, they're always like simplifications. But the dichotomy usually is an attempt to highlight some important tension or something. Yeah, um, it's a rhetorical device. Right, exactly. Yeah. What some people, I think, maybe don't always realize, especially if they don't do modeling, is that making the model more quote-unquote realistic is actually like quite problematic because usually that means giving more detail to the model, say going from a model that just uh, captures firing rate to a spiking neural model or like getting into compartment levels, like, you know, dividing up the neuron into different compartments and having different equations for each of that. Every time you add new spots for free parameters, you're increasing what the model is capable of doing in kind of a non-interesting way. But in the view of the people who do modeling, it's like, yeah, I, there probably is a parameter space where I could replicate any kind of behavior if I have a very detailed model. But that's without having the data to constrain yourself. That's not an interesting question. And also you're creating a search space that is so large that you're only going to find some, you know, you're not guaranteed to find an interesting solution in it, even though you know theoretically you could find almost any solution you want if you make the model detailed enough. An unconstrained, very detailed model can do almost anything, and it's not necessarily interesting if you find that out. 
And so this kind of discussion relies on, you know, heuristic and kind of vague, by, by definition, like by necessity, notions of interesting or understanding, right? So in some way, there is this tension, you know, in, in I guess all of science, but in particular in these kind of sciences of like messy, complex systems, particular bi- particularly biological ones, where you want to kind of understand systems, but sometimes it's not exactly defined what that means, you know, at the beginning. And so, uh, you know, some hyper-detailed model that reproduces, may, may reproduce some details of some particular set of data may not yield much that feels like understanding, which is, you know, hard to define exactly, but maybe it's, does it yield useful kind of tangible concepts that then allow you to like quickly come up with, you know, new ideas, new experiments, um, these kinds of things that allow you to kind of intervene in systems in interesting ways, um, and so on. So there are two ways in which you can go wrong in modeling, I think. One is the the way that I said where you made kind of a, a model of that's more detailed than it needs to be by some measure. And, you know, it's not that interesting to say that you got it to reproduce maybe some simple behavior. So you make some complicated spiking model and connect all these cells and you just want to show that, like, if I give it input, the firing rates go up. Like, you don't need a complicated model for something simple. Um, the other way, I think, is maybe making your model so simple that it's almost trivial. Like if I just had a single equation and said if I give it more input, it gets higher, that's also trivial. So there's different ends of, of being trivial that I think uh, don't allow you to kind of, as you were saying, kind of like do anything with the model. It's just, okay, it fit the thing that I made it fit, and then it's like dead there. There's nothing else to do with it because it wasn't actually a well-built model. Right. I guess the, the other thing I would add there is... Um, if, if the whole point of your model is just to fit some data, I think that, you know, that modeling study is almost sort of dead in the water to begin with. I think like all good modeling really has to start with a scientific question and not, can I reproduce this, you know, maybe somewhat strange looking data set? Um, really, like when you collect a set of data and you you think you want to model it, you think you want to model it because you have some hypothesis about the mechanism that generated it. And maybe that hypothesis is that um, this mechanism is um, the, you know, sort of simplest uh, model or most energy efficient or, um, you know, interesting by some metric. Um, And really, I think the best modeling papers don't just try to reproduce observations, but really try to bring it into a conceptual framework and use mathematics really as a way of formalizing the sort of conceptual hypotheses that, uh, uh, you know, both theorists and experimentalists use uh, when trying to understand neural systems. Yeah, I think that's a good Yeah, summary. definitely. And I think, you know, people who are into theory, I think, know the people who they think are good at that. I've heard experimentalists voice a sense of like, I don't understand the purpose of these these neural circuit models. And I think that comes from the fact that there are a lot of papers that will be pro- primarily an experimental paper. And then the last figure, they'll throw in some model and be like, and then our model replicated it. Right. And it's one of these models that isn't really, you know, 
solid in its foundation. And so if you see that over and over, then you think, I don't understand what this adds. And so I'm, I'm very sympathetic to that. And I say that as a, as a person who has built a model that was the last figure in an experimental paper. I mean, there's mm-hmm. a, it, it's difficult to find the balance of like, I want to show that this experiment that you just did, you know, I can make a model that does it. But you also have to force yourself to incorporate as much external data that's not from the, the experiments that, that you're looking at directly to, to make that actually an interesting uh, model. Yeah, you want the model to do something, you know, in some sense, right? So like Alex talked about fitting it into a conceptual framework, formalizing um, concepts that, you know, are already being used. What is the what is the point of that formalization? Well, like there's many different possible points, but a couple of them would be that, first of all, it forces you to make assumptions clear. You, you test whether or not your concept really stands up in certain ways. It allows you to explore like whether there are kind of unexpected consequences of certain certain things. Um, you know, oftentimes a concept that kind of makes sense in your head, it turns out when you try to really implement it, you come across some difficulties that you didn't think of before, and those can lead to, like, new insights. Um, there can also be this function, right, of, like, trying to link different areas and ideas together, so trying to find principles that apply more generally, um, just kind of guidance. So a lot of those models, I think you talked about, Grace, that you see a kind of sort of these kind of end of paper models, which, you know, it's not like it's not like that's a, some how generically a bad thing. I mean, but yeah, I think the feeling of them being dissatisfying often it comes from this this place like where they don't really they don't they often don't have a very well-defined function. Like they don't feel like they're there for anything. And to be really cynical, it's like maybe they're there because like, I don't know, there's a kind of a fashion of you know combining data and modeling or something but um more sympathetically i guess it's like many times these models are kind of the first attempts at formalization in certain areas because it's still a a kind of dawn of a field um in a way yeah i I think that's exactly right and then i I would just jump in to say that you know the opposite sort of exists that sometimes you'll have a theory paper where usually it's not the last figure but it's like the first figure is one small experiment Hmm. and then the rest of the paper goes into like a really detailed model which is you know characterized in detail and like yields some sort of um, theoretical result but it would sort of be ridiculous to then say for theorists to say oh I don't get the whole point of this experimental business because there was just you know this one experiment at the beginning of the paper and the experiment was pretty dissatisfying probably because there's you know probably controls and things that were left out and needed. Um, But I just sort of think that's the nature of interdisciplinary research is that the balance there is hard. And usually for like a scientific story to sort of hold weight, it has to maybe focus a little bit more on the experimental side or the theory side. Um, And yeah, I don't know if that's a sociological or sort of cultural artifact or if it's, um, you know, something to do with our attention spans as as scientists that we like to, you know, sort of focus on one or the other. I think a lot of the things we've been talking about, this idea that you can build models that don't feel like they have legs is because of things being underdetermined. The fact that you can make many different models that fit the same data if the data, if if there's not enough data. Um, And so... Um, I guess maybe we can just go into the the Mark Goldman paper where they try to use a lot of different types of data to uh, fit a model and then kind of give a nice exploration of the parameters of the model that are still kind of free and open and what happens if you vary those. So this paper uses the um, uh, an area of the goldfish hindbrain that does 
uh, ocular motor integration. So basically it kind of keeps track of where the eye is. And it does that by receiving as input signals about the velocity of the eye. So if like the eye moved leftward, then this model can integrate that leftward signal and it can know that the eye is, you know, more left than it was before. And then it's kind of stores that as a memory, it needs to uh, remain active as it stores the location of the eye at the current time. Yeah. So, I mean, this paper is, I guess, relatively unusual um, and directly related to the kinds of issues we were just talking about about modeling and experiments and the kind of tensions and what you're aiming for in and you know they kind of explicitly talk about those issues i think so they talk about you know just on the, on the first page they talk about the challenge of modeling and the and two two kind of approaches which maybe are like the opposite ends of the spectrum that we've already kind of touched on so one would be like very conceptual models that um are like very very that kind of simplify away a lot of the details that we know are there so you know simplifying away all of the biophysics of, of actual neurons or whatever, um, maybe the complexity of the way they connect to each other or various kinds of imperfections and so forth, um, and trying to make just kind of conceptual models that give you some insight into the high-level kind of phenomenological function of, um, of a circuit. And then on the other hand is this idea of models that want to be basically as detailed as they need to be to directly contact with as much ex- of the experimental data um, as they can so um, you know which will end up being some models that have like very large parameter spaces just because inevitably these uh, systems um, which are complex biological systems have many pieces that could be relevant to the way they function they try to take this approach which is nice of trying to sort of straddle both worlds in a way um they try to i actually i'm, I'm not kind of <laughs> i'm not going to give a very perfect account of this of exactly what they do but but at a high level I, I get it which is that they kind of try to both incorporate as much experimental data as possible on this one on this one kind of um circuit which has a behavioral function positive behavioral function which is you know this thing that grace mentioned about keeping track of the position of the eye so they combine a lot of experimental data and they make models that are complex enough to be able to co- make contact with various different kinds of experimental data at different levels of detail. But then at the end, they try to ask these questions about, okay, like, we have these models that can reproduce various things now, like, what really matters here? What are really the principles that are important? And so they do this, we can talk about this in more detail, but they do this kind of sensitivity analysis to try to understand what can we change? Like what, what's really important and to maintain certain types of um, function and fit different aspects of the data and so forth? Yeah, so I can try to cover briefly more of the details of what they actually did so that we can use that as a, as a base to talk about the general principles. This brain area is set up in a way where it spans both sides of the brain and it has connections that go across the brain. And so there's um, a population of cells on the left side and the right side and the there's like a push-pull dynamic between them where the population on the left side is active and the right side is uh, not active if the eye is facing leftward and then the reverse if it's facing rightward. And so the basic setup of this is that it's assumed there's um, a pool of neurons on both sides and they have 
excitatory connections within a side, but then inhibitory connections across sides, so they can kind of um, have this this push-pull interplay. So basically, they recorded from a bunch of neurons in this area, and they, in order to characterize kind of the input-output function of the neurons, so like how do they produce spikes in response to different inputs, they actually injected the neurons with current and were able to just kind of observe this relationship with increasing current, how many more spikes does the the, the neuron produce. And so they did that for a bunch of different neurons. Um, and so they could have this um, set of input-output functions. And uh, they then fit models, spiking models, to these input-output functions that they had. Um, and so they're building individual spiking models that through different parameters involving um, like ion channel conductances and that kind of thing can replicate the observed input output functions of the neurons that they recorded. And then they want to fit, they want to kind of put all of those neurons together into a model. And so they, um, they don't know the exact anatomy, but they use this general principle that cells on one side are connected with excitatory connections. And then across the two sides, as I said, there's inhibitory connections. So they have some excitatory cells on each side and some inhibitory cells on each side. And they're kind of connected in this way. And then using the outputs that they observed about how these um, cells fire in response to different locations of the eye, they kind of use that information to try to fit the connectivity to try to get at what the actual connections between the cells should be, even though they can't observe that um, experimentally. They can't get at the actual uh, connection strengths between all of the individual neurons. So that's something that they have to fit in the model. And that um, fitting procedure has kind of two different components. There's the um, maximal strength of the connection between two different neurons. So each pair of neurons has a value that says kind of how strongly they're connected. And then there's this other function that is kind of the the shape of the connection, which kind of relates the activity of the presynaptic neuron to exactly how strongly it um, it drives the postsynaptic neuron. So there's like a shape to the connection. And then there's the relative magnitude um, that describes the strength of the connection across all of the neuron pairs. Oh, and in addition to just recording from these neurons during normal eye movements, they also do inactivation studies um, where they will uh, apply a drug to one side or another um, of this brain area and see what happens to the responses of the cells when part of the, the population is inactivated. And basically what this is doing in terms of underdeterminacy is giving you more equations. So you have this circuit model that has all these unknowns that are the, the, the strengths of the connections between the cells. And you only have so much data, which is the activity of the neurons uh, in response to different eye positions. You can increase the amount of data that you have for the same model by doing this inactivation. And then now you have, okay, well, what do these cells do in response to this eye movement when part of the circuit is inactivated? And then you can uh, use that to increase your kind of amount of data that you have to fit these unknowns because now the model has to match both the normal activity and the activity when um, part of the cells are inactivated. Okay, so then basically they fit this model and they find that they can they can fit it well. They can reproduce a lot of the um, activity that they see in the neurons that they recorded. Um, but basically there are multiple ways that they can get the model to work. There are different areas of parameter space that um, will kind of make the model work equally well. And 
the reason why I like this paper is that, as we were talking about before, a lot of papers would just present to you one of the parameter regimes that worked for them and say, here's our model, we fit the model, and it worked. And in this one, they're actually showing you it works this way, it also works this other way, we can get it to work, you know, it by using various different combinations of parameters. Um, and so they kind of show the, the range of parameters that will allow it to work, and they basically subdivide it into kind of two different types. Um, and this has to do primarily with how they define this, this synaptic activation function, this function that says how one neuron's activity drives the, the other one. And so they show that in this parameter space, if you vary these two parameters that define this function, uh, you can get multiple areas that fit the model. But it's not the case that you vary it kind of along one parameter and it's just, oh, for any value of parameter A, um, you can get it to, to work for a single value of parameter B. It's kind of like a line using A and B. So you have to vary both of these parameters together in a certain way to get the model to work. And this is a, a concept that's called sloppiness. Yeah, so the the idea for sloppiness really goes back to the um, example we sort of gave at the start of the podcast, which was um, if you have a constraint that um, like x plus y equals 1, um, there's a direction there. And there's basically defines a line where of all integer values where both x and y will continue to sum to 1. So in this case, you have a much more complicated nonlinear function. But the idea is once you find a single model that satisfies your constraints, it turns out, and you can study this, and the authors do this with sensitivity analysis, um, basically if you jitter all the parameters in the model a little bit in each direction, you can get an estimate of how sensitive the model is to different combined changes, small changes in the uh, model parameters. And you can find certain directions where if you change the models together in a certain way, the constraint, uh, the model, or the electrophysiological behavior of the model is really constant along those directions. Now, in most directions, if you just change the parameters randomly, most directions you will um, severely sort of change the output of the model and maybe break the constraints of your data. Um, but there are sort of highly tuned directions that you can find. And um, the authors basically for much of this paper are really going into those directions that are quote unquote sloppy because uh, the model is basically under constrained uh, in that uh, particular direction. So I, I want to talk about like the connotations of sloppiness because I feel like that word suggests like this is bad, it's sloppy in that direction. But then at the same time, people like to talk about robustness and it's good to show that your model is robust, uh, that it's not finely tuned in the sense that it's not the case that the exact parameters, values that you have in your model are the only ones that work. You should be able to jitter them around and the model should still generally work. And if you can do that, we say that it's robust and people like that because they know that biology is noisy. And if you're putting forth the idea that this model needs to be exactly as you say it is, then it's unlikely to exist in reality. But I guess the difference here is that robustness says that you can move at least a little bit in any random direction and it should still work. Whereas sloppiness is saying you can move a lot, but only in certain directions in this kind of general parameter space. So I think is that a difference between robustness and sloppiness? And what should we think about? Is sloppiness bad? 
Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. Um, one way of thinking about it is like if you're a neuron and you need to build yourself by making um, some collection of ion channels and different proteins, if there was a very, very strict recipe that you had to follow and perhaps like you aren't well fed or um, there's other, you know, sources of stochastic noise that threw you off target. If, if the system was brittle, um, you, you wouldn't be able to actually build the neuron in the first place. So basically, if it's really necessary for biology to function and for evolution, you need to have a, so, some baseline level of robustness or redundancy in your system. Um, is it the case? So, I mean, should we think of sloppy directions as sloppy because you can afford slop? as it were. So certain directions in parameter space are sloppy because you can afford to have kind of sloppiness in those directions and afford with respect to some cost function usually that's right not defined at the level of the parameters. So the point is that like the system is made up of kind of bits that have values like so so examples are right neurons have ion channels, so there's the density of the ion channel, different ion channels, right? These are some numbers that are parameters that kind of constitute or define the neuron. But then the thing that, like, something cares about the system, the functioning of the system, or, like, evolution, say, you know, the survival of the animal, things that, that it depends on are, like, higher level than the actual values. And so um, so you can afford... So sloppiness, sloppy directions are those directions where you can afford to move around, basically. Basically, this this ties into uh, a lot of other work by Eve Martyr, where um, her and Tim O'Leary argue that perhaps there are um, developmental and homeostatic mechanisms that neurons are equipped with that are basically well-tuned to directions of sloppiness in the system. So the idea being that during development, the system tries to produce proteins and ion channels, um, which are the parameters of the cell uh, that determine its function. Uh, It tries to build a complement of these uh, parameters that explore these sort of sloppy directions in parameter space um, and keep you out of bad regions of parameter space that would lead to, um, you know, neuron dysfunction, either seizures because the uh, neurons are too active um, or comas because the neurons are underactive. Um, Should we think of sloppy directions as being like rare or being generic in systems like this? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, Before I answer that question, maybe uh, one thing to talk about is what do we really mean uh, by direction in parameter space? So to be concrete um, and sort of the way that we think neurons and biological systems take advantage of these sloppy directions is really you can think about it as like a ratio of ion channels for example so if uh, the cell needs twice as many sodium channels as potassium channels then when we say the neuron is exploring a sloppy direction you could imagine that the genes that uh, this neuron expresses um are expressed at a ratio of, for example, two to one. Two sodium channels are produced roughly for every potassium channel that's produced. And if that's if that's roughly the recipe that your cell needs to follow to uh, make a functional cell, then that 
um, sort of expression ratio is what uh, evolution will target and what the neuron will sort of have hard-coded um, in its uh, genetics. In terms of whether those directions are generic or not, so I, th- I think th- there's work by Eve as well as um, other many other people working in different areas of biology. James Sethna from Cornell, I believe, uh, comes to mind. He's actually the one that coined the term sloppiness um, in these cellular models. And his work sort of argues that, yes, it's a generic feature of any time you have a high-dimensional system where you have um, many parameters that come together to form some lower dimensional or emergent property of the system, then you will necessarily have directions in parameter space that are, quote, sloppy. Um, The flip side of that is that you'll also have directions in parameter space that are, quote, unquote, stiff. And it's possible that biology also takes advantage of these directions as well if, for example, you need uh, your neurons to be acting in a certain way in one situation, but you want them to behave quite differently in, a, in another situation. So an example might be something like sleep states. Um, you know, how do you turn a brain from wakefulness to um, being asleep? We know that it has something to do with, you know, many neuromodulators that are produced by lower order um, sort of like brainstem areas. And we know that this widely changes the electrical properties of neurons. So it could be that in addition to taking advantage of sloppy directions during development and homeostasis to produce robustness and stability, as Grace was saying, it could be that biological systems are also taking advantage of these stiff directions which also sort of generically exist in these systems um, for other functions. So the idea is that like the stiff directions, what that means is that when you change parameters, you actually do get a change in the system. And the sloppy ones are you change parameters and you don't get a change in the output of the system that you care about. That's like the general. Yes, that's right. Okay. So I want to like swing back slightly to this um, Mark Goldman paper because I think they don't just identify the the sloppy direction in this model. They actually then go further and uh, propose experiments that could tell you where in the sloppy parameter regime you are. The idea being, in this case, they're kind of assuming that the biology is fixed. Biology is using some parameter regime. And they've narrowed it down a bit by building this model and showing that it still performs well within this certain um, sloppy combination of parameters Um, but then they also show that if you were to experimentally uh, silence certain subsets of cells so the difference in in this model is if you were to silence inhibitory cells that have a low threshold to fire versus cells that have a high threshold to fire if you kind of separate the inhibitory cells into those two populations and silence them each individually and then observed how the model or how the the actual circuit is affected Um, that would tell you which area within the sloppy range you're in. So it's kind of adding more data to constrain your model more. And the important thing here is that by building the model and pointing this out, they are giving experimenters the actual relevant things to test out. And they even point to other um, tests that could be done that wouldn't help discriminate between Um, different areas in the sloppy regime. So it's like a very concrete example of how building this model can give you clear next steps uh, in an experimental setting to help narrow down where the biology actually is functioning. Yeah, and I I might add to that. So I I agree that this is one of the 
really nice things about this paper is that it doesn't just present a single model, but gives you sort of a whole spectrum of models that solve uh, the task or are consistent with the data that they collect. Um, and then, yeah, they go one step further and say, okay, well, there are certain experiments that we can now perform that would give us very deep insight or very informative um, estimates of what the model parameters should be. But at the same time, you know, I think one of the one of the take-home messages from Eve Martyr's work as well as James Sethna is that no matter how many more experiments you propose, um, you can only cut down on the slop so much. Um, I guess what I'm trying to say is that there's two uh, forms of sloppiness, um, or the sloppiness that you observe in your model is a function of um, both how much data you have, and if, since you have limited data, there's going to be some slop there. Um, but also there's sort of slop in the um, intrinsically within the system. So if you measure the number of sodium channels, for example, animal A in the same neuron for animal B, and you can do this in certain invertebrate species where there's small numbers of neurons and very well characterized circuitry. When you look in these, you know, simplest, most reduction, um, the, the simplest systems that you can find, uh, you still find that there's variability from animal to animal. Um, and there, that sort of suggests that uh, there is just sort of intrinsic sloppiness in the system in addition to sort of experimental or accidental sloppiness. And just to, to kind of follow up, and I'm going to slightly repeat what you said, I think, but I think it's important. One way of phrasing this would be sloppy, sloppiness, sloppy directions are not related to necessarily directions that are just like, that are kind of um, uncertain only experimentally or only by in terms of measurement, right? There are directions that, you know, if we have a good model of the system of some network, say, certain config, there's going to be like certain ways of changing the parameters that just don't matter for the behavior that is relevant for, you know, creating the right firing patterns or something. And we may, it kind of, it's a hypothesis in a way, right? But the hypothesis would be, and it's supported by a lot of um, Eve's work, like you say, that you can just generically expect the biological system to actually not care about exactly where it is in parameter space along directions that are sloppy with respect to its the, whatever its important kind of function is. And so you can actually expect real variation along those directions. And that variation could be between animals, it could be across time, etc. Um, and so if that's the case, then in some sense, what, what you've learned by kind of identifying the sloppy versus the stiff directions and differentiating them is that certain experiments don't matter. Like there is kind of no point nailing down the precise point you are at along some sloppy direction because they're equivalent at the level of the, uh, the, the higher level function. And then, and then one more thing is that related to what Gray said, you know, proposing in this uh, Goldman paper where they propose these experiments to differentiate mechanisms. If you can propose an experiment that will tr really differentiate two points in parameter space, um, it kind of means that with respect to some new measure, the direction connecting those two points in parameter space is not sloppy, even if it was sloppy with respect to some other measure, right? So that's kind of a way of thinking about experiments um, as kind of inducing a new measure of, of function, which wasn't the one that you were thinking about in the first place. And you know, with respect to the first measure, it's sloppy. 
respect to this new measure, it's not, and you can differentiate them. Yeah, uh, that, that's a great point. And that actually also comes up in Eve's work and, and probably uh, many other labs that I won't mention. But I'll just say very briefly that some of the work uh, in Eve's lab has recently looked at the effect of temperature on these circuits. And the outcome there is that when you look at two different, um, so she studies crabs, I don't think we've mentioned yet, um, but crabs and lobsters and invertebrates, if you look at the same neural circuit in two different crabs, um, they might look very similar when you first record from them under, you know, sort of physiological temperatures and regular physiological conditions. But then when you perturb the system with a temperature, by raising the temperature, um, the circuits start to behave quite differently. So there's sort of even though these two crabs looked very similar at first, the perturbation that you introduce actually unmasks this sort of hidden variability um, that is actually was present the whole time, but it wasn't revealed under physiological conditions because they were exploring the sloppy parameter space. But as you, yeah, um, do things like raise the temperature or ablate certain neurons, like the paper that we're discussing from Mark Goldman's lab suggests, when you do those sort of experimental interventions, you can unmask this sort of latent variability. And I think another thing to say that uh, is maybe not clear yet is when we say that these directions are sloppy and potentially variable from individual to individual, there's a lot of evidence, not just from Eve's work, but in mouse neocortex and uh, other areas that individual ion channels vary threefold to fivefold or even higher from animal to animal. So when you have these like just really large and striking variability at the level of individual ion channel uh, expression, but still when you look at the you know sort of higher level neural function, um, superficially it seems quite similar. That's sort of the basis for unlocking this, uh, this uh, sort of variability. And an important implication of all of this uh this work and it's something that that Eve Martyr has studied explicitly and it's important for people doing experiments is the idea that if there is this variety amongst individuals and different individuals are kind of finding different solutions to the same problem it means that using averages across animals like studying you know parameters of different cells across animals and taking the average might not actually Put you in a solution space that works. So if like one organism or one individual is solving the problem by having high levels of A and low levels of B, and it turns out that, you know, the same problem can be solved by having the reverse low levels of A and high levels of B, and then you take the average across those two animals, you're going to get kind of medium levels of both of whatever you've been measuring, ion density of some kind, maybe. And that average solution might not actually work. There might not be any individual organism that has those values um, as their actual parameter sets in their cells because the average values don't work, but the individual values that are found in individual organisms do work. So that's like an important consideration given that most experiments are done by measuring stuff across a bunch of different animals and then taking an average. Yeah. I was just going to say, I really like the temperature example because it makes it so clear that it's like biology is saying you're going to live in this kind of temperature range. And so you only need to work well in this temperature range. And so figure out a solution that works well in this temperature range. And then, you know, whatever it does in some crazy high heat, I don't care. (laughs) So it's like really a good example of this. People also talk about this with respect to evolution, you know, and the, the temperature 
um, example is potentially kind of directly relevant. So, it, you know, you could imagine that, uh, say, if some important environmental variable like temperature is constant over a long period of evolutionary time, you could have genetic drift along these sloppy directions. And then you would have these underlying genetic differences between animals that were not that don't exhibit any phenotype. But then if there's some gross change in the environment, like an increase in temperature, you could have an actual emergence of um, differences as these underlying genetic differences cease to be sloppy in this overall new regime. And then you would have this, these phenotypic differences that would rapidly emerge um, and there'd be some selection process. And that can, that's one proposed kind of mechanism of um, speciation that comes up. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, kind of like, uh, as Alex was saying, there's this James Sethna guy in uh, systems biology who coined the sloppiness term and has been thinking about these kinds of ideas. And it just kind of struck me how little communication there is between computational neuroscience and systems or computational biology, which you would think like they are overlapping or something like that. But systems biology is more looking at proteins and molecular mechanisms or things maybe on that level and I can't remember the last time I went to a talk by someone in systems biology but I guess it would be useful yeah and there's actually a really nice paper from Eric DeShooter it's a little bit old at this point but it's called why are systems biology and computational neuroscience so separate um, and it, it's a it's a good read. It's pretty short. Um, and if I remember correctly, um, yeah, one one of the big differences is that in systems biology, um, people are more interested in these low level um, sort of detailed models. Uh, whereas in computational neuroscience, the history has sort of borrowed a bit more from artificial intelligence and tried to abstract away some of those low-level details and get at sort of what is like the simplest, if a bit conceptual and abstract um, model uh, that can reproduce phenomenologically neural behavior. Uh, But yeah, no, I I agree. And I I think um, actually, so when I was working in Eve's lab with Tim O'Leary, we drew heavily from systems biology literature in our in inspiration and really i should say i should say tim tim is uh, actually really well versed in that literature um, and did a really good job of sort of bringing to bear basic uh, models of gene expression and then connecting them to uh, simple compartmental um, electrophysiological models of of, uh, of neurons so um yeah, I think he's doing really interesting uh, work in sort of that interdisciplinary section that uh, is not always so explored. Um, and he actually, he organized a sloppy models workshop at Cosine two years ago, which I, I think uh, me and Connor were both at. Mm-hmm. And that, that was a bit interesting because he, somebody who worked from James Sethna's group was there. I believe actually the first author of this paper, um, Fisher, the... Mark Goldman also presented. Uh, so it was like sort of one of these interesting cases where there was bridging a bit of a bridging a gap between these two communities. Um, and it was funny, and Churchland was, uh, I guess, giving Tim a hard time and joking with him that he, he somehow wrote the proposal for the workshop in a way that allowed him to sneak in all these uh, systems biologists into a computational neuroscience <laughs> conference. But um, but yeah, it, it is interesting. I think it's a mix of sociology uh, and cultural reasons for that separation. Um, but there's also maybe some deeper fundamental reasons as well. 
So I guess we've mentioned some of the things from uh, Eve Martyr's work and the idea that there actually is variability amongst individual species. But I just want to kind of concretely touch on that paper. And so one thing that was interesting to point out is, as Alex said, she works on invertebrates like lobsters and crabs. And part of the reason, I believe, is because you the, the circuits there are well-defined. And so if you uh, record from a neuron in one animal and the same neuron in another, they're defined enough that you can actually say, like, this is the same neuron in each, yet they have variability in ion channel density or something like that. Whereas if you just stick an electrode into monkey cortex and say, oh, look at this neuron responds this way in one animal and this other neuron responds another way in another animal, it's like, well, who's to say that those are supposed to be the same in any way? So you really need a circuit that is in some way well-defined so that you can compare across animals in a way that's meaningful and not just like, you know, you're comparing apples to oranges and, and the two different individuals. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. Um, and, you know, one of the extreme cases of this is the uh, lateral pyloric neuron or LP neuron, as we call it, where there really is just a single one of these cells in every animal. And yet it um, is like a very fundamental part of this uh, central pattern generating circuit uh, that Eve studies in the stomatic gastric ganglion. Um, and the, the function of this circuit is to filter and chew food that the lobster has recently consumed. So it's a, it's a very you know, fundamental neural circuit that if it's messed up, the lobster is not going to be able to eat and will die. But yet there's still just, you know, uh, there's not a whole lot of redundancy at the level of cells. <laughs> there's um, about 30 cells, roughly 30 cells in the whole circuit. And a few of them, there's, you know, just copies. Uh, there's just a single copy of them. So, yeah, so it, it is a very well characterized circuit. And that, you know, was, I guess, the original reason that Eve started studying this um, back, you know, many decades ago at this point. But it wasn't really actually the causality was a bit in the other direction where, uh, she was interested in studying the circuit for a long time, and it was because they got to the point where they had characterized all the individual cells in the circuit well enough that they became sort of confident enough that they could compare from animal to animal what the variations were. And they weren't just looking at experimental noise, but they were looking at like true biological animal to animal variability. Um, and then, uh, so it really after working on the system for decades, she then sort of came to this realization that there was this sort of extraordinary amount of variability from animal to animal, and then sort of had to dive into the mechanism of that because it was just such a cool question. Yeah, I think everybody admires Eve Martyr so much. Like, it's just, it's always a striking thing when you hear her talk. That she's talking about this, like, su supposedly, like, tiny, super simple circuit in this, like, the gut of these crabs and lobsters she always draws out these like really general and like often beautiful principles she's a cool cool person she also has all these like i love her art series of articles she writes in elife you know about kind of life of scientists and kind of re doing research nowadays seems like a very thoughtful kind of kind of person okay what else do we want to talk about i guess maybe we can give a few more examples of basically experimentally identified quote-unquote sloppy dimensions. So one of them is in the lobster, there are neurons that innervate muscle, and I guess there can be variety in the number of neurons that innervate a muscle, but then it's compensated for by differences in synaptic plasticity. So I assume it's something like if you have 
fewer neurons innervating that muscle, then maybe they strengthen more, their connections to the muscle strengthen more easily to compensate for the fact that there's fewer of them or something like that. So that would be kind of a pair of parameters, if you were modeling it, that would need to vary together to conserve the behavior of the overall muscle. And so it is, it's interesting to see how you can kind of go both directions with this. You can build the model and try a bunch of stuff out and say this is the, the parameter regimes where the output is constant. Or you can observe individuals within a species and kind of just say, well, there are differences in these. So there must be a way where the output can become constant despite these differences. Mm-hmm. There's a way in which having it shown that the... Uh, behavior of, you know, say a neuron can be constant, even though there can be huge differences in the number of ion channels in it or something like that, if the differences are in these sloppy directions. Like, knowing that just (laughs) kind of verifies my belief that I can not care about certain levels of detail. (laughs) Like, I tend to care about kind of, I think of a neuron as kind of an input-output function. There's maybe one or two equations that you can use to describe the full functionality of the neuron. And some people might come along and be like, oh, but they're so complicated and there's all these different ion channels and all this kind of stuff. And I just, you know, I can now point to this and be like, yeah, but it doesn't matter because they're all just going to end up producing the same behavior if that's the behavior that that neuron needs to have. (laughs) Right. I mean, a caveat, right, is that how do you know what the relevant... It's like the statement is, for high-level behavior, details don't matter, right? And that's true. But a question is, well, what are, what is the high-level behavior that matters? And so, you know, like if you use certain kinds of neural network type models for looking at neural circuits, right? So like where, where each neuron is described by some um, variable, like it's activation that varies with time and it receives like a weighted sum of inputs from other neurons and those are put through some nonlinearity. you know, it may be that like many neurons can kind of be captured by that simple model and the details of how they come to effectively do that high level thing don't actually matter. But um, it could be that there are just other high level things that neurons do. And sometimes looking at the details that you have ignored in kind of thinking, if you have one high level thing in mind and you ignore a bunch of details, it could be that maybe by going into those details and looking at them and kind of in examining them and, and thinking like, what could these matter for? You would find other kind of high level functions that are important, right? So like presumably the shape of dendritic, dendritic trees has various kinds of functions that are capturable, that are, but that are maybe different to like just being it being one activation function, right? Like, or something. Yeah, um, this is kind of related to what you were saying before about how kind of like sloppiness is relative. It depends on what you're claiming yeah. is the needed output of the system. And then you can say, with respect to that measure, these parameters don't matter. But for a different measure, they could matter. I, I, there was one just final thing. Um, we're kind of coming to a sort of halting, you know, sort of stuttering end here as we fail to have some unifying, beautiful conclusion. But so to add to that, one thing I thought was nice from the O'Leary um O'Leary, Sutton and Martyr paper was this idea that when you start thinking, I mean, in some ways, it's like sloppiness thing has certain, it's kind of obvious in certain ways, like there must be, it can't be that all of these things really matter, you know, in some very, very vague sense. And, you know, of, of course, from dynamical systems and math, we've known for a long time that like systems have things that matter and things that don't. There's like bifurcations. There's certain things that are important. If you change them a little bit, then you get very qualitative changes and in the system and so forth but thinking about this explicitly 
in this kind of way in biology, I think, is nice because it puts, and they say this explicitly, it puts an emphasis on understanding regulatory logic, the regulatory logic of systems. I think that's that's important. And maybe I would venture to say that in, in theoretical neuroscience, it's somewhat understudied, maybe. Although there are, you know, people have done lots of work on this, and maybe it's something that comes and goes in waves. But thinking about these systems as kind of performing high-level functions with these very big, complicated parts, and thinking especially about sloppy versus stiff directions kind of makes you think of, you know, homeostasis and neuromodulation, things that kind of prevent you from moving certain directions and versus others, and, and then mod- neuromodulation is kind of um, systems that have figured out ways to kind of move, um, a, you know, a circuit or a cell or something over a kind of bifurcation or over a phase boundary to get a qualitatively different behavior in some when needed. Um, I think the kind of emphasis on that I just like in sort of a st- for aesthetic reasons almost uh, useful. I think. Yeah, I mean, uh, to at the risk of belaboring the analogy, but to go back to the analogy of if you have two variables x and y and you know that x plus y has to equal one because of some data you've collected like this body of work to me sort of points to the fact that rather than focusing on the individual value of x and y what's really scientifically important um, and of interest is that is the full equation the constraint x plus y equals one so and i I think that's probably something that uh, will be a general principle which is if you really are aiming to study very complicated system and you want to have some high-level understanding of what it does, there's going to be different layers at which you abstract away details. And rather than focusing on the actual like values of synaptic weights or the values of the parameters in your model, um, yeah, it's sort of extracting the regulatory logic, as you were saying, Connor, um, is sort of that is maybe the unit of currency of theoretical neuroscience um, rather than these sort of like low-level details. Yep, that was as good an ending as any. Till next time. Hey, if you're still listening to this, you must really like us. So how about you go to iTunes or Stitcher and rate the podcast, give us some feedback. You can also go to our website, unsupervisedthinkingpodcast.blogspot.com. You can comment on different episodes, or you could give us ideas for new topics you want to hear about. We would love to hear from you. Thanks.